0: You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now, let's begin today's message. Okay, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're looking today, as we continue our series in the book of Revelation, we're looking today at the Church of Smyrna, which is also referred to as the suffering church. And is this my my way of teaching? I'm gonna lay a few things by reminder, by way of reminder in my introduction, and lay some things out, give you some details for those of you who take notes and want to have information pertaining to this church, and then we're gonna get into our study and look at its application. And so I give information, I give a context, I develop a foundation then move to application. That's how I do it. And so hopefully uh, it'll be something that today we all can profit from. So beginning at verse 8, Revelation chapter 2, and reading to verse 11, Jesus said to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So we are looking at letters from Jesus found in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. We've already looked at the first letter, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And as we looked at this letter, as we saw, this was a church that was very busy. It was known for many good things. And Jesus gave them commendation because they worked tirelessly. They endured pressure. They lived with purity. They tested apostles. And they didn't become weary doing all of this. But in spite of all of these things, Jesus still said that I have something against you. In verse 4, he had said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They've left their first love. In other words, their love for Jesus had grown from fiery to indifference. The fire of their first love had slowly started going out, and the warmth of their love gave place to traditionalism, and traditionalism gave place to doctrinal orthodoxy. They believed the right things, but they didn't have the fire of love for Christ. And, and uh, this is something Jesus is speaking to them about. We remember that the apostle Paul had issued a warning to this church when he was in a place called Miletus and who was speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. We remember that Paul had told them that they were going to endure challenges. They needed to remain alert. And so in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul had said, Guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. So he warned them in advance that they needed to continue feeding that church the word of God. And Jesus is warning them, and in Revelation chapter 2, we saw that he had told them to once again do what he called their first works. Now, the first works are are the ones that that flowed from their deep love for him. And so, Jesus' word to the church of Ephesus was found really in three words. His remedy was remember, repent, and return. So, as I've mentioned, they have a primary and a personal message, and the primary and personal message was not listened to. So that resulted to the third, which is the prophetic, and Ephesus no longer exists because Jesus had made it very clear that they were to repent. He had said in verse 5, "'Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent. Do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent.'" He made it clear if they didn't repent, he would would remove their lampstand. The lampstand, we know according to chapter 1, verse 20, is the church. He is saying, if you do not repent, your church will no longer exist. He didn't mean that people would lose their salvation, but that the church would forfeit its place of being a light and a witness. Well, they didn't repent, and their lampstand was removed. I've had the opportunity of visiting the ruins on to occasion, the ruins of the church of Ephesus. And that's all there is. There's really no ruins at all. The city is an ancient city, but there's no evidence that the church ever existed there. Charles Feinberg, one of the the commentators that that I learned from uh, speaking of this, said, Ephesus is a city now wrapped in the mantle of Islam. The light of the church has indeed been moved Ephesus tried to make her paradise here on earth, and in doing so, allowed her love to grow cold. And so he spoke concerning that, that, that word to the church of Ephesus. And, and now we're, being, we're going to be looking at the letter to Smyrna. Now, again, in my introduction, I mentioned that, that each letter has three practical applications. You have the primary, the primary uh, speaks of having a direct bearing on the churches represented, it has the personal because each church had people needing to hear what the Spirit says, and then you have what is called the prophetic, which would give to us the seven stages of the life of the church from from Pentecost to the rapture. And so Jesus began each one of these letters by addressing the pastor or the angel of the church. We just saw that in verse eight, where it says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. So he began these letters by addressing the pastor or the angel of the church. The word angel is translated um, messenger, and so Jesus intends to communicate a message to the church through his messenger, and he does it through a letter to the church delivered to them by the pastor, and that's what he continues to do to this day. His message is revealed to his messengers and to the church. His will is revealed through his word and is accurately taught, empowered by the Spirit, that pastor delivers it. So as a pastor, I've been given the charge of proclaiming the truth of God. I'm commanded to carefully present the whole counsel of God. And that's because God's word is able to instruct us and it builds us up in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus and his word are neglected in the church, love's fire begins to go out. And that's what happened in the early church. That's what happened in Ephesus. You see, again, the prophetic message was not not heard by the existing church, and it was a prophetic warning to that church, as well as to churches throughout history. The warning, do not forget why you were established. You were established to bring glory to God, and if you drift away from this, your lampstand will be removed. So we're going to look at Smyrna, the church of Smyrna, found here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The word Smyrna means bitter. That's what it's translated. Smyrna is what is, in Turkey, it's modern Izmir. And Smyrna during that day was a prosperous seaport. It had a population of some 200,000. It was located 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus. History doesn't record when the church was planted. Some think that Paul planted the church on his third missionary journey. But one thing is certain, it was a church under incredible pressure, incredible persecution. Now, Jesus has made it clear that the church will be persecuted. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, that's one of those promises that you don't want to find in your your promise box of verses. You know, you want to read the verses that say, oh, it's my verse for the day. What is God's, oh, you are the head and not the tail. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I accept that. But you don't want to find the, the verses that speak about us being persecuted. The church really in our day is being purged. I think it's being sifted. I think it's being tested and tried. And I believe, and this is my opinion, but I believe it's true, that what's taking place even through this time that we're going through right now with the COVID and all, that it's a purifying effect on the church. The believers are, 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 are beginning to reveal what they really believe, and those who have just basically gone through the motions when given opportunity to, uh, to make determinations as it relates to their faith, many of them seem to be stepping away from their faith rather than drawing closer to the Lord, and that's what persecution has a way of doing. It has a way of purifying, and Smyrna was going through persecution and being purified, Now, Smyrna received its name from a Hebrew root word that means bitter, myrrh, and myrrh is a gummy resin taken from a tree that has a bitter taste. Myrrh was a commercial product of Smyrna. That's what gave the city its name. And myrrh is used in making perfume as well as anointing oil for the priests, and it's also used in embalming. Myrrh, in order to be used must be crushed. And so myrrh is a picture of the pressure and crushing that takes place in order for the fragrance to be released. Interestingly enough, that's what happened to Jesus. You see, in Isaiah 53 verse 5, speaking of Messiah, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word bruised in Hebrew means to be shattered or crushed. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And so myrrh is crushed. The church is going through a crushing. And that's what's happening to them. Persecution is inevitable. Persecution is something to be expected. Now, Paul made it clear that this would happen in the lives of believers in Jesus because he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, Smyrna is receiving this promise from the Lord. When you look at it in terms of what it represents, Smyrna represents the second era of church history from the years 160 to 312, from the emperor Nero to the emperor Diocletian. Smyrna was in existence when the church was persecuted by pagan Rome, and therefore it represents the suffering church. Now, the primary and the personal message is occurring persecution is rampant. Roman imperial law against Christianity is carefully enforced in Smyrna. And because of this, persecution is severe, and it was centered there. The prophetic message informed them that persecution would continue, and it would continue over time. And because the church is persecuted, Jesus' self-identification is more understandable. Notice what he says in verse 8. These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, so each letter begins with an application of the description found in chapter 1, the description of Jesus. And here Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So this letter identifies Jesus as the eternal one, the eternal God. John had before declared this in his, in his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In John 1, 14, The Word was made flesh, dwelt amongst us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John has already identified Christ as the eternal God. But notice he says in verse 8, who was dead. So He's the one who suffered and died on the cross. So Jesus is reminding them that He was persecuted and that He was killed. He went through suffering and death, and He understands and identifies with them. It's what He's saying. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus had gone through suffering and death. He was completely rejected. John pointed that out also in John chapter 1 when he said in verses 10 and 11, although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. In John 15, 24, and 25, Jesus said, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. He was the one who was dead and came to life. He had the ultimate victory over death as well as the grave. One of the things the church needs to remember is that Jesus destroyed death and its power. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, Paul could say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? In 2 Corinthians 13:4 he was crucified through weakness, and he lives by the power of God. You see, we should take that to heart. Because we too shall triumph. And and this church, Smyrna, though they're going through hardship, difficulty, persecution, poverty, they should take it to heart because in Christ they're victorious. The psalmist in Psalm 60 verse 12 said, with God we will gain the victory. He will trample down our enemies. And that's true. God will take care of us. We have nothing to worry about. God is on the throne. He will provide for us. He is with us. Don't forget that. Because one of the things the enemy is trying to do right now is to undermine our hope. He's trying to undermine the hope of the church. We think we've lost. We haven't lost. We're in the book of Revelation. We're going to get to the last page of this last book. And we're going to see that in Christ we won. And we need to understand that. Because the church is forgetting that right now. We're acting like we're unbelievers in many places. We're closing doors to churches. People are afraid to come to church. They're afraid to have fellowship. Well, well, the world isn't afraid to go to a bar. The world isn't afraid to go and get a tattoo. The world is not afraid of going and buying weed. The world is not afraid of protesting, but the church is afraid to gather to worship Jesus Christ? I don't think so. That's why we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we do, because we trust him, and we are victorious in him. You need to understand that. In 1 Corinthians, the Bible tells us in chapter 6, verse 14, God both raised up the Lord, and he'll raise us up by his power. So what do I lose if I die? Nothing. I gain everything. I get to see Jesus Christ face to face. Well, people are saying that's nice, but later, how about, you know, give me another week or a month, another two years, ten years. I I say, you know what? Whenever, Lord, when you want to take me, that's soon enough. I'm not going to do anything to get myself killed sooner. I'm not going to kind of, you know, um, I'm not going to do anything to presume upon him. But, you know, yesterday we remembered the homegoing of my pastor, Chuck Smith. You know, seven years he's been he's been with Jesus. Do you think he'd want to come back for one moment? Of course not. He used to tell us, he says, you know what, Chuck Smith isn't going to die. He's just changing residences. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that's the way it should be. You know, there's a song that uh, was written a long time ago and None of you will remember this because you're too young. But uh, it was a song that I used to think was about a, a, um, uh, a man singing to his girlfriend, uh, I would give everything I own just to have you back again, by a group called Bread. Again, you wouldn't know who that is. But he was not singing to a woman. He was singing to his father. Did you know that, those of you who know the song? He wasn't singing to a girl. His father had died. And he said, I would give everything I own just to have you back again. And I thought about that, you know, when that song uh, came to mind after my dad went home, and and I wouldn't. I would never want my dad mad at me coming back here. Are you kidding me? (laughs) My dad wouldn't want to be here. My dad is beholding the face of the Lord. My dad in heaven is having fellowship with those who've loved Jesus and gone before. No, no. See, so heaven to me isn't an escape of any sort. Heaven to me is home. And one day I will get to go home to be with Jesus and to be with family and friends. I'm looking forward to it very, very deeply and all of that. And so for me, you know, going through what we go through is just steps towards the ultimate goal of being with him. And and God raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. He will raise us up by his power also. Keep that in mind. Now, the Roman persecution of the church lasted for two centuries. So in this age, the church was crushed and yet yielded a sweet fragrance to God. Now, remember, to the Ephesians, Jesus had a word of rebuke. They had left their first love. But to this church, he has no rebuke. They're under tribulation for their faith in him. When you look at the seven churches, Smyrna and then Philadelphia, are the only two churches that received no rebuke from Jesus. You see, their trials and persecutions had purified their faith. And through it all, they remained faithful. You see, false believers are not willing to endure affliction, and their false faith is revealed by it. People will hold on until it comes, becomes rough. And Jesus spoke concerning that in Matthew 13 when he spoke about the seed that produced that 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 began to wither and die. Why? Because opposition to the word of God had come and they they produced no fruit. Well, the bottom line is that a true believer, uh, though we may be under pressure and, and, and conflict in inside and out, yet we hold fast to the one who saved us and we don't turn away from him. But a false believer, one who's making a false profession of faith, will not endure affliction. They just give up. So in the face of affliction, trials, and persecution, the church has remained strong. Notice what he says in verse 19. I know your works, your love, your service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's what he spoke to to, uh, to the the next church we're going to look at, to this particular church. He speaks concerning the fact that they have works. They also are holding fast. He speaks of in verse 9, in verse 9, their works, their tribulation, and their poverty. Now, in looking at that, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. They are suffering terribly, and they're experiencing tremendous poverty. That word poverty is a word that many of us don't really understand. And I'll tell you, you know, as Americans, there are very few Americans, not to say that there aren't any who do. There are some who, of course, do. But there are not that many When you look at 330, 340 million Americans who understand what he's speaking about here when he speaks of poverty, because the word poverty that he chooses to use is abject, total poverty. They're suffering, and they're experiencing terrible poverty. Now, how did that happen? Well, they also may have been robbed of all their goods while undergoing persecution. You see, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 35, The writer said, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. They had gone through poverty. Their property may very well have been confiscated as they're being persecuted. And sometimes hardship hits those who are pursuing the Lord with great commitment. You see, what happens is when they're hurt, they begin to wonder where God is and why did this happen? I gave up everything to follow you, Lord, and look what's happening to me. Why is it? But in spite of the opposition and persecution, they remained faithful. Persecution didn't quiet their service to him. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 7, when Paul was writing to the church there, he said, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so poverty doesn't destroy. Poverty and affliction was causing them to blossom Notice in verse 9 how Jesus spoke of their works, tribulation, and poverty. Though impoverished, he says, you're rich. Your faith has been purified, and your love for Jesus has become stronger. In James 2, verse 5, James had said it this way. He said, listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. So Jesus is saying, in spite of your financial poverty, You're rich. Your life is based on something deeper, something of more value, something that is permanent. You didn't build your life on sinking sand. You didn't build your life on something that can't remain. You built your life on the solid rock. And in spite of the things that you're enduring, the things that you're suffering, you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that this earth is a place you're just passing through. And that one day you'll be in heaven. You know that. You have something deeper, something of more value, something that's permanent. In Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, Paul said it like this. He said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I was talking to my wife the other day, and I was saying, you know, there are people who have become very wealthy, and I have no envy of the wealthy, to be honest with you, if they have money, uh, that it's not something I, I, I care about. And and all because if God has blessed you with finances, praise the Lord. Use it for his glory. That's great. I think it's a good thing as long as the glory goes to the Lord and we don't become um, caught up with what we own. Because, you know, I, Jesus told us that we're not to be caught up with what we can eat and what we drink, what we put on. He said these are the things that pagans go after. And so we were taught that, you know, we use things, but we don't abuse those things. And if the Lord has given us finances, we can use them for his glory and also for the pleasures that he allows us to have, because he gives us the power to gain riches, according to the book of Deuteronomy, and and we just use it rightfully. So he doesn't hate rich people, and neither do I. I wish I had a few friends who were. So no, we we don't hate them, but we also know. And I was mentioning this to my wife the other day that but riches and financial security—it's a good thing to have, but it doesn't produce a um, a sense of of um, of um, value. I am I am not what I wear, and I'm not what I eat. I'm not what I drive. I'm not what I where I live. Those are just locations. What I am is a person made in the image of God. What I have has come from Him. My value doesn't come from attention that people have given to me. That's why I would think that you can see people who are very rich and still very miserable. That's why you can see people who will claim to understand what they are now referring to as the common man when in fact, they haven't been common themselves for a long time. The ones who, who can walk into a room and everybody stands to give them acknowledgement, recognition, and respect, even that's not enough. They have to destroy anybody else around them that might get the same kind of welcome. And I see that today, especially in the political world. I won't go politics. Don't worry about it. But I do see that that I can write a law for you, but I don't have to obey it myself because I'm above that. You wear a mask, but me, I don't have to. That's common. We see that. We think we're above the laws we pass for other people. You see that all the time. And, and is it the money that makes those people happy? No. It's a recognition and acknowledgement of other people. So there are things that are more important than the money you have. And one of the things is your sense of who you are. And what you are is not what you wear, what you eat, what you what you drive it. Those things are just byproducts of a life. The thing that matters is who you are in Christ. And that's why if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's why that's so valuable, because I see myself as what I am, created in the image of God. I see myself as, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, I see myself as a person who's been forgiven of my sins, cleansed from past, present, even future sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I see myself as passing through. And so the time that I'm here is to be used for him because one day I'll see him face to face and then I will lay whatever it is before his feet and I'll say it was all for you. And so my personhood doesn't come by any material thing. And Jesus is saying, you are are poor, but you are rich. You're poor, yes. You don't have the money to go out to a Fleming's. You don't have the money to go out and drive a Mercedes. You don't have that. And By the world's standards, you're nothing. By the world's standards, you're a nobody. But in God's sight, you're a child of God, and you have what he has given to you. And those things change the way you think about yourself. We have to be careful not to lay our treasure up on earth. We need to understand that we are to lay our treasure up in heaven In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says that Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It doesn't even have to be great amounts of money. I drove beaters. My dad used to call them beaters. I mean, my first car cost $75, and we got ripped off. <laughs> it was a piece of junk. It was a piece of junk. It was a 1957 Volvo. Piece of junk. I didn't have a front-right passenger seat. So what we did is we put one. My, my sisters had these little, you know, where the little girls used to have tea? You know, those little, the little teeny chairs? And I took one of my sister's chairs and put it as the passenger seat. (laughs) That was our passenger seat in my car. I still remember giving my mom a ride in my new car back in 1966 in this car. And it had no way of locking the seat down. It was just sitting there. And it was a stick shift. So, yeah, you're ahead of me. And so I I, I would pop the clutch. So my mom would fall back into the back seat (laughs) because it it wasn't anchored, you know. And so, so I, I've driven beaters. I, I had seven cars uh, that were five of them I owned and two of them that were one was my sisters and one was my brothers that I had before I was 18 years old. I had car after car after car. They were all pieces of junk, all of them, except for one. And I drove that into the ground. And a long time ago, I, I began to learn that those kinds of things do not make you happy. I learned that. And I learned that that that, that a car is, is to take you to, from point A to point B, and that's pretty much the best that it can do. And so I began to learn very early that certain things do not last forever. And so when I came to faith in Christ, that was something that the Lord began to show me scripturally. Don't be laying up treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust, it destroys, it can be stolen. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'd leave my 57 anywhere. I never rolled the windows up and I never locked it. And if you stole it, you'd be doing me a favor. <laughs> you know, it is a piece of junk, you know what I mean? And then you get your first car that you think is new. It may be 5 years old, but to you it's new. And what do you do with that car, guys? What do you do with that car? You start hunting for parking spaces in parking lots to make sure there's no cars close by because you don't want someone to swing the door open and ding that beautiful car that's got 120,000 miles, but it's your first new one. And that's what happens it's very subtle it really is before you know it your hunting places park you park taking up two spaces and everything and it doesn't really matter guys because there's going to be a shopping cart that has a mind of its own it is going to weave between traffic it is going to hit the side of your car you might as well get a hammer out hit it get it over with because that's what's going to take place well we need to remember that the promise of heaven is, is something that actually motivated them to continue. It was something that, it was their desire to be there. It's like what it says in Colossians 3 verse one, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So this, this, this treasure in heaven, this, this understanding, was something that drove them. And so he says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, that you're rich but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know the blasphemy. That word blasphemy speaks about the things that they're saying about them. And and he's saying that there were certain Jews, notice not all, but there were certain Jews using malicious slander to incite persecution. When you read the book of Acts, you'll find this interesting, I think. No less than 23 instances of opposing Jesus are found in that book. No less than 23. You see, from the beginning, Jewish resistance to the Christian faith was, was there. It's found throughout the book of Acts. A few examples. In Acts chapter 2, verse 13, after the day of Pentecost, and they were out speaking in unlearned languages and tongues. Well, the believers were mocked there. The people were saying, these people are drunk. When you get into chapter 4 of the book of Acts, uh, it reveals that there were priests and temple officials and Sadducees who were upset at the resurrection and were coming against the church. In in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, that verse records how Peter and John were commanded to stop preaching in this man's name. In Acts 5, 17 and 18, the high priests and the Sadducees put him in prison for preaching about Jesus Christ. So Jewish opposition to the gospel was very strong. Remember the apostle Paul. Paul, the scripture says, was breathing out threatenings against believers and persecuting them severely. Again, when and Paul was given a, a brief testimony in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he was speaking to a king named Agrippa. And he said, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He would be there as a witness to their execution. He compelled them to blaspheme. And Jesus is speaking of this. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. You see, that kind of resistance became common. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, Paul said, you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep them or keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. In Smyrna, some of the influential Jews who were rejecting the gospel were poisoning the people against believers. Now, I've mentioned that Christians were already dealing with various accusations. The Romans considered believers disloyal for not acknowledging Caesar as Lord. The Christians would not burn incense before his image. They wouldn't call him Lord. And because Christians met at night, they were accused of plotting to overthrow the Roman government. Christians were considered atheists because they rejected Rome's many gods. And Christians were falsely accused of cannibalism because they had communion, of incest, because brothers married Christian sisters. The disruption of business for interfering with the sales of idols. They were considered anti-family because of their loyalty to Jesus. Of causing natural disasters because they wouldn't worship their gods. And when bad things happened, Christians were blamed. And because they didn't attend festivals and pagan events, they were regarded as self-righteous and anti-social. You can have that attitude to this day. You're not going to go to this Who do you think you are? You're self-righteous. Who do you think you are? That happens to this day. So some influential Jews living in Smyrna rejected Jesus and opposed his followers. Notice how Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. He does that because they're opposing God. By attacking the church, they're actually doing Satan's will. Notice verse 9 again. Jesus says, they say they're Jews and are not. They're racially Jewish. Being physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not truly Jews. Why is that? Well, they may be physical descendants, but not spiritual descendants. They don't have faith in Jesus. In Romans 2 28 and 29, Paul said it like this He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So Jesus is saying racially, they're Jewish. Spiritually, they're pagans. And though they've been enduring persecution, Jesus prepares them for more. Notice verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Notice he doesn't extract them from the time of suffering. He prepares them for it. Notice how he says in verse 10, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. This is going to reveal the reality of your faith as you endure this attack. Your faith is going to be tested but you will be victorious. In Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You've caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. When we go through these things, it's a purification, guys. It causes us to see how great God is. And you begin to discover that no matter how deep the thing is that you're going through, God is deeper still. No matter what it is you go through, He's with you. He never leaves you alone. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And He doesn't. He is with you. He's closer to you than your own breath, He's closer to you than any brother. He's closer to you than any mother or father ever has been. He is closer to you than anyone could be because he dwells within you and he loves you and he never leaves you alone. He never lets you go through these things by yourself. And as you go through them, God is with you. And you learn things through him. And you learn things with him. At the end, you will say, I am glad for what I've gone through. Because going through those things helped me to know how great and good my God is. For he never left me, nor did he ever forsake me. He has always been there. And he has taught me what it means to be his child. And I've been purified because of that. And that's what the Lord is saying. Don't give up, guys. Don't lose hope. God is with you. He will not forsake you. He'll bring you through, and as you've been tested, you'll be refined, and your faith will be that which you desire to have. If you've asked God, make me stronger, this is how you get stronger. Anybody in God's family, we don't receive trophies for participation. We receive trophies for going through the work. And as we go through it, then we receive the reward because our faith has been tested. And that's how it works. So don't get upset at God. He's answering your prayer. Did you ever say, Lord, make me like you? He said, are you sure? Yes, make me like you. Oh, weep, weep, weep. My hands are up. Make me like you. Okay. God, why are you doing this? But you, you said, make me like you. I was kidding. I was saying that so the girl next to me would think I'm spiritual. You know, I've read the last chapter and the last words of the last book of the Bible. We win. We win in Christ. I've read it. We win. He says in verse 10, you will have tribulation 10 days. So the devil initiated persecution. In other words, it endures for a time, but it's limited. Now, some commentators take this literally. They say they're going to endure 10 actual literal days. They say that the attack would be intense, but it's brief. Other commentators think that this speaks of the 10 Roman persecutions that were enacted by 10 Roman emperors. Because when you look at the history of the church, you see that Nero initiated the first persecution in AD 54. Then you had Domitian in 81, Trajan in 98, Antoninus in 117, Severus 193, Maximum 235, Decius 249, Valerian 254, Aurelian 270, and Diocletian 284 to 312. These were all persecutions that were officially sanctioned. It's estimated that from AD 64 to AD 312, six million Christians were persecuted to the death. Christianity Today writ, uh, wrote recently that over 70 million have been martyred since the time of Jesus. In 2017, Gordon Cornwell a Theological Seminary said that over 90,000 people were martyred over the last 10 years. Over 90,000 died for their faith in 2016 at the rate of one Christian per six minutes. Over 900,000 were martyred over 10 years. 90,000 died for their faith in 2016. One Christian for six minutes. Under Roman rule, Christians were expected to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. This was to show their loyalty to the government. Believers refused to do so, even though it was only a little bit. Part of the problem was that as they burned the incense, they would have to call the emperor Dominus, which means Lord if you refuse to repeat the pledge and burn the incense, you are an enemy of the state, a hater of the gods, and either imprisoned or executed. Rome, I mentioned this earlier, was not atheistic. Rome was very religious. Rome recognized the great diversity of faiths. The reason Christianity was persecuted is because Christians would not recognize other faiths, but insisted that there was only one true faith, and that was through Jesus Christ. So the reason for Rome's persecution of the church was that Christians proclaimed that Christ was an authority that was higher than that of Rome and its emperor, and Rome would not tolerate that, and Rome still doesn't. Rome will prosecute you for doing what we're doing right now. The government will do that. This is not much different, except it's not as severe at this moment. There was a bishop by the name of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a pupil of the Apostle John. He died a martyr's death. When ordered to recant his faith, Polycarp said, I have served the Lord for 86 years. He has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? for refusing to honor caesar and burn incense he he was tortured and his body was burned persecution continues to this day i i don't mention this very often some of you are aware of this most of you wouldn't be because i don't bring things up like this but i will share this right now i uh, i i've, I've sp- i spent a month in in india um I went to India twice, two different times, once for 16 days, the other for 14. I I went to India to minister to Indian churches. And on one occasion when I was in India, I went to a church service, and the church is interesting. It's a small room, small, small space. The men sit on one side, the women sit on the other. Actually, the men sit in the front. The women would sit in the back. Because they separate the, the men and the women in these particular churches that I've gone to. And uh, while I was there in India, I met a man. His name was Moses Paulos. Moses is an evangelist. And Moses was invited to go to a small village. If you've been in India, you know that there are many, many small villages all through it. And he was invited to go to a small village. To preach the gospel. So he and his son went to this village. As they went into the village, it was a trap. They actually had been set up. And the village elders took him and tied him and his son to a tree that was in the center of the town. And when they tied him to the tree, they took rods and they beat him severely to the point of being unconscious. And he was beaten so badly, he almost died. As they were beating Moses, they sent out for the town Skinner, Then that's just what that is. His job is to take a razor-sharp knife and peel your skin off of your body until you die. And so they sent for the man to come and torture Moses and his young son to death, but by the grace of God, they couldn't locate him. So they beat him severely to the point where he had to be hospitalized for several weeks. He and his young son. And so as they hospitalized Moses and all, he finally recovered. And when he recovered, he said, I'm going back. So Moses Paulus went back to the village that tried to take his life. And when he went into the village, they came running to greet him. Now, If I saw a bunch of people running at me as I entered the village, I think I'd be, "Mm," you know, I got other things to do. But he didn't. He walked in and they said, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. This is a true story. I'm not making it up for effect. We've been waiting for you. Why? (laughs) Because we have offended your God. How do you know that? And led them to the tree in the center of the village that they had tied them to. The tree was an ancient tree where they did all of their pagan rites and sacrifices and ceremonies. It was the center of their worship. And it was dead. And they said, your God is mad at us for we tied you to this tree. And he has killed this tree. And we have been waiting for you to come back to tell us about this God you worship. For he is the one we offended. True story. And Moses shared with him them the gospel. The whole village came to faith in Jesus Christ. So the persecution that the church goes through, there's a purpose in it. I went to China. That's another thing I don't tell you about. Years ago, I went to China to deliver Bibles. We Americans have Bibles sometimes in every room. We have decorative Bibles. We have family Bibles. We have Bibles all through our rooms. It's the number one bestseller in the United States to this day. It's sold but not read. But we have Bibles. And so the Chinese church at that time did not have any Bibles. What they were doing is if I had a Bible, I would actually cut it up by books, 66 books. I would cut out each book, and I would give each book to someone to hold for me if I was the pastor, hold this book for me. And then when I was preparing a study, I would connect with you, and I would say to you, I'm going to be teaching out of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to need chapter 9. And you would come in, uh, on the sly to give me those ch- that chapter so I could use it to do my studies. Some of us don't know that, but that's what was taking place in China, and I think there's still some going on like that now. So we were told about that, and I was given the opportunity to sneak Bibles into China. Now people were saying, "Why would the pastor break the law because they need the word of God? I would rather obey men than a uh, god than men." And so we brought the word of God to them. They needed it. And so as we came in, it's a surreal adventure, I have to tell you, as we did this, but as we brought the Bibles in, I'll never forget a couple things. One is when I came in with the suitcase and I I don't want to say too much about that now because you never know. Um uh, but I I brought it in And then the people who are going to get the Bibles, it's just, there's an exchange. And so we're standing on the side just watching to make sure that the people get the Bibles who are supposed to get them. And I'll never forget standing there as I was watching across this airport, and I could see these people who are the couriers standing there looking down at the suitcase crying. They were weeping. They were weeping because they got the word of God because they needed God's word as they cried and walked in delivered them. Those are the things I remember. And then I was given an opportunity to meet a man. I can give his name now because it was a code name even then. They called him Panda. And so I met him in a Beijing park. It was late at night. Nobody was in the park. So I went with my, with one of the guys to meet this man named Panda. And you walk through this, this park all by yourself. There's police everywhere, but you walk through the park and you sit down on on a bench next to this man, and, and your translator is standing next to you as the man just starts to talk. And he says, I was a pastor. I preach preaching the word of God. I was arrested for preaching about Jesus Christ. I spent over 20 years in prison. He says, I had seven children. He said, one of them was born to my wife when I was imprisoned. Six of those children are followers of Jesus Christ, but the seventh, without my influence, never came to know him. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking how spoiled I am as a believer. I have Bibles, I have opportunities, I have things I can do freely. And my my freedoms are restricted to a degree, but not like that. You want to talk about, about persecution? This church, the church does not know persecution yet, but there is a spirit of resistance. Today, in our beloved United States, and every believer knows that. Every one of us knows that. You say, Oh, no, come on, Pastor. You're just being dramatic just because it's a Church of Smyrna persecution. No, okay. Tomorrow, when you go to work, tell people what you really believe. Tell them. Tell them who you're going to vote for. <laughs> tell them. <laughs> tell them. Unless, you know, maybe you're voting for the one they will. I'm not. Tell them. Tell them what you believe about marriage. Tell them what you believe about gender. Tell them what you believe. And see how happy they are with you. How they pat you on the back and say, you know, well done. Well done. No, you know this, don't you? You are under so much persecution, you don't even realize it. And you know what we're doing? We're we're climbing up. We're shutting our mouth. We don't want to speak. But guess what? I'm not shutting my mouth. I'm going to speak because we're supposed to. We're supposed to. That's what Christians do. And Jesus said, you be prepared. We're going to be, you're going to be put in prison. But guess what? I was the one who was dead, but I'm alive. I am the first. I am the last. And your name Is written in the Lamb's book of life. So open your mouth for Jesus Christ and speak for him. Because it's such a time as this that the church has been put on the face of the earth. And we are to speak in the name of Christ. Be aware of those things. You see, we receive a a crown. I'll close with this. It says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This crown of life, it's rewarded to believers. It's awarded to us. There are different crowns that you read about in Scripture. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. The crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. The crown of gold in Revelation 4, verse 4. The crown of rejoicing. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, this is the crown of life because glory outlasts the pain that we experience on earth, and you will receive the crown of life, which is a result of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And one of these days, I pray, one of these days that you and I, that we together will hear the words, well done, my good, my faithful servant. That's what it's all about. Please don't ever forget it. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.